You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The Trial of the Chicago 7 earned six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor for Sacha Baron Cohen. Cohen joins the Post to discuss the film, how it resonates today, and his wide-ranging career. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Anne Hornaday, uh-huh. Chief Film Critic for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm very pleased to welcome Academy Award-nominated screenwriter and actor, Sasha Baron Cohen. Welcome, Sasha. Hello. Thank you for having me on. What does hashtag positive mean? Um, well, you know, it's better than hashtag negative. Okay, I'm in. I feel very positive. <laughs> oh, it's post live. I'm sorry. It's hashtag post live. Washington Post live. Okay, there, there we go. go. I need new classes. That's what's clear. Academy <laughs> Award nominee, but unable to read the small print. Well, between us, we'll get it right eventually. Um, Congratulations, sir. You're nominated for two awards, one for Best Adapted Screenplay for Borat Subsequent Movie Film, the other for your supporting performance in Trial of Chicago 7 as Abby Hoffman. Um, It's amazing. And both of these movies are sort of uncannily, they rhyme, right? They both deal with issues of free speech, uh, political activism. Was that by design or a happy accident? Um, in some ways, I, I, oh, am I echoing there? Um, in some ways, it was an accident in that I had first joined the cast of Chicago 7 13 years ago when Spielberg was directing. But the movie had gone away, and then I had heard that it was happening again, and I was shooting Borat and I basically decided that I had to stop Borat and play Abby Hoffman because this was a character that I'd been obsessed with since the age of 20 when I first came across him while writing my thesis at university. Um, So yeah, so I, it was a coincidence and intentional. Indeed, and I understand that was a bit of logi- it was a logistical challenge that you s- actually stopped shooting Borat in order to to get to the set for Chicago Seven, but you really couldn't talk about Borat at that point because it was still pretty secret. Is that right? Yes. So I managed to convince my fellow producers that we'd be able to finish Borat and have it out in time for the election. I mean, we were making this movie for the sole reason of having it seen prior to the election as people were going, you know, to vote or or hopefully encouraging some people to vote. And um, and I managed to convince my fellow producers that we could do it and we could still edit it and shoot it in time. They were worried. And then obviously what I didn't factor in was the pandemic. Um, but then once I arrived on set, I didn't tell anyone, including Aaron Sorkin, what I'd been doing the prior three months um, because I had to keep Borat under wraps. I cannot even imagine what a challenge that would have been as a, just performance-wise. You're coming from this persona that you've built over the years, this very specific style of comedy and performance that you have perfected and refined and, and turned and just 
developed a really sublime art form. And then you're, you know, you're going to more of, I guess, a straight dramatic role, even though the guy you're playing is also a part of that comedic uh, agitprop tradition. It's fascinating. Did you, was it technically difficult to make that shift? Yes. I mean, it was, um, you know, because I was going straight from Borat. So while I was shooting Borat during the days, at night I was learning the dialect of Abbey um, with this incredible um, dialect coach called Tim Monick, who I'd met on the set of Scorsese's uh, Hugo. And so I was, you know, trying to, you know, it's an Aaron Sorkin movie, so you you have to be perfect down to every comma and full stop. And so I was, you know, trying to make sure that script was completely innate, trying to study Abby and learn him and research him at night and during the day shooting Borat and obviously uh, rewriting that script at the same time. So it was, it, that period there was really hard. Then when I actually got to Chicago, I could fully focus on Abby Hoffman. And um, yeah, it was, it was challenging. Because that, you know, Abby has his own set of challenges. Indeed. And, you know, I, I and also I, I have checked with friends in Massachusetts and um, they say, yeah, it's okay. That the, the Worcester, the Worcester accent, like, it's good. And that's high praise coming from people in Massachusetts because they're so... Thank you very much. Because they don't, they don't overdo it like people no. in LA and say it's awesome when it's just good. So that's good. I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, he's got a very specific accent. It's um, Massachusetts mixed with a little bit of Brandeis, mixed with a bit of Berkeley, where he spent many years. And then he's just got a very, very unique voice. So I managed to track down all the audio recordings um, that had been made of him by going to um, some archives, which are now no longer open. But he he had these, when he was performing live, he'd sometimes jump an octave. You know, it'd be a kind of, uh, turn into a Yiddish mama. And he also had these sort of weird rhythms. He was very influenced by Lenny Bruce, the stand-up. And when he was doing his live performances, he'd slightly ape some of those rhythms. So, you know, I wasn't trying to do an impersonation of him, but I felt to do, to give him credit and his legacy and those who survived him credit, I had to at least know him completely before trying to inhabit my version of him on set. challenge to kind of internalize as much as you can about a person and then kind of throw it away so that you can really deliver a performance rather than a than a mere mimicry um tell me a little bit about like you said you did study him i mean you wrote this your dissertation on him and my understanding too is that aaron sorkin maybe didn't quite know as much about him as you did so could you tell us a little bit about how you helped aaron understand who abby hoffman really was and then how that informed your performance well, the first time I met Aaron, he was the writer for Chicago 7, being directed by Steven Spielberg. And I had a debate with, not a debate, a discussion with Spielberg at the time, which was, why do we have to make this movie? You know, I feel like there has to be a purpose to actually make a movie. 
And at that time, this was, I think, 2007, it, it didn't actually feel like there was an imperative to make a movie. My suggestion was that we do it to inspire young people to go out and become like Abby Hoffman and to go on the streets and to make democracy an actual act. Um, you know, not all of them would risk their lives like Abby was doing, but at that time, it, in that period in American history, it felt that there was not much active political protest. You weren't seeing the huge demonstrations that we saw last year. And so I felt Abby was a, an inspirational figure and a hero. You know, again, I'd known and admired him since the age of 20. And Aaron at that point saw him more as a buffoon and a clown. And actually the thing that convinced Aaron was not me. It was a press conference that you saw a little clip off beforehand where Abby's joking around in front of all these journalists. He'd, um, they'd ask him what his price was to call off the protest. Um, and he says very seriously, my life. And it's chilling when you see it. Um, and uh, we actually, I did a Zoom with uh, Lee Weiner, one of the surviving members of the Chicago 7 the other day. And he said he saw that scene in the movie and it reminded him of the chill down his spine when he saw Abby in the room. You know, Abby was this prankster. He was a buffoon. He was hilarious. He did all these crazy stunts. He joined the yippies, tried to get a pig elected, um, tried to levitate the Pentagon. But underneath it all, he was deeply serious and he was actually ready to die for the fight against injustice. And that... That's what I'd come across in my thesis uh, in my 20s, which was he was one of a group of sort of left-wing Jewish protesters who joined the civil rights movement in completely disproportionate numbers next to their, considering their um, race, because, you know, Jews were about 30 times more likely than general white people to join the black civil rights movement. And what I was interested by and compelled by was the fact that these, many of these activists knew that they could get violently beaten or they could even get murdered. There's the case of Schwerner Cheney Goodman, which is two Jewish students who were murdered and uh, one uh, African-American student who were murdered by the KKK. That was a long answer, wasn't it? You can tell me to shut up. Oh, no. Well, you know, but but we have a wonderful clip that that illustrates your point beautifully in terms of that balance that Abby Hoffman, and I would argue Sasha Baron Cohen have between that comedic agitprop sensibility and, and really being thoughtfully grounded. This is a scene, uh, one of the best scenes in the movie, I think, uh, the courtroom scene when Abby Hoffman's on the stand, he's being cross-examined by federal prosecutor Richard Schultz, played in the film by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Let's watch. You have contempt for your government. I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically 
to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. What a great line. I've never yeah. been on trial for my thoughts, right? Well, you're, the reason you have that incredible cast, and those are some of the greatest actors in the world. They really are. Uh, many of them have won Oscars. They are legends, you know, of stage and screen is because of that writing, right? It's not just a story. It's that you have Aaron Sorkin, who's our Shakespeare of cinema, has refined and reinvented the script that he's been living with for 13 years. Everybody reads it and he can get anyone in the world to play those roles. And he was, I was lucky enough that he chose me again. But yeah, he's, he is the greatest living screenwriter. It, it, there's, a, there's another parallel there, I think, between Abby and you, which is that you have made an art form of, um, of getting us, and by that I mean Americans, and, and the people that are in your Borat films, to reveal their deepest thought. Um, you know, through that, through that very unique way of performing that you have developed, which I would argue has its roots in Jonathan Swift, and you've already talked about your clown teacher and the Buffon tradition, but um, do you see a parallel there with, with Abby and Borat and you and all your multitudes? You know, Borat is obviously the opposite of Abby, Abby, Borat is a misogynist, Abby is a feminist, Borat is a anti-Semite, Abby is an anti-racist, Borat is an authoritarian, Abby fights for democracy. But yes, I wonder whether, and I'm very bad at <laughs> knowing myself of my mental process, but I wonder whether subconsciously, perhaps when I was studying Abby Hoffman in Cambridge with uh, I was inspired by him and inspired by the idea of using humor to challenge the establishment and challenge those with power um, that you know that's in the tradition of the bouffon which is as you refer to it's this kind of medieval style of comedy and satire where people who were kind of dispossessed would put on plays where they would uh, pretend to be the king of France, and it, it, it was an early form of satire, quite a vicious form. And what I noticed the first time I ever did Borat, I actually, I, I realized it would allow people to open up far more than we'd ever seen them on TV, primarily because they thought they were doing this for a show in another country. And actually the first TV show that I pitched a TV channel, which failed, and they rejected it, was Mears Borat. And I pitched it not as a comedy show, I pitched it to the documentary department of the BBC. 
I said, this is a mechanism to get English people to really reveal what they think about things, not what they're ready to say in front of the camera, what they would say behind closed doors. And so, yeah, it is, I'm hoping to reveal the thoughts of Americans um, and the complexity of them, really. I mean, mm. they- um. I know I in the middle of a sentence but then I raise my eyebrows you know I'm not very good at doing interviews as myself this is my uh, least popular character Sasha Baron Cohen so um you may see the numbers decline during this live show <laughs> I disagree I think you're doing absolutely splendidly it's wonderful you've just set up oh, a, another <laughs> there's a great clip from Borat that I think again illustrates exactly what you're saying um which is that not only are you allowing us to sometimes reveal re- reveal our deepest flaws, but our our humanity as well. This is a scene from um, Borat's subsequent movie film. Let's watch this and then come back and talk about it. Where is everybody? I do not see anybody on the street. It's everybody's at home. They're telling them to stay inside so they don't spread this virus. There's a virus. Yes, they're wanting everybody to quarantine. I do not have uh, nowhere else to go. Could I stay in your home? This is it. Come on in. Go ahead and come on in. Very nice. Nice to meet you. Okay. Yes. How long must we be stuck in here? Well, don't know for sure till this COVID-19 thing passes. What is more dangerous, this uh, virus or the Democrat? Democrats. Democrats. I think with the Democrats, with Obama, and I think it goes back to the Clintons when they were also in office. This uh, Clinton, they make this play yes yes mm, nice so this is a really interesting scene here uh with you and these two gentlemen because as you were saying earlier when you were first developing borat and pop and ali g it was the aim was to punch up all the time right and and, and sort of speak truth to power but the power yeah. dynamic here is is not as clear yes um because that's not what i'm trying to show here this is the aim of living with them um was to show the dangers of uh conspiracies and lies being spread by those with power and by that i mean politicians i mean owners of certain news channels and the uh, handful of people who run social media so these are people who are spreading lies and conspiracies for their own power. And I wanted to see the effect of that on ordinary people um, and also to show their complexities. So Jim and Jerry are ordinary guys. They're actually good people. They welcome Borat. Um, a lot of liberals would probably see them as the enemy because they hold views that are not dissimilar from the people who attack the capital. 
Um, but what I wanted to show is that they've been fed a diet of lies and conspiracies and that there was complexity. They had many positive things about them that, you know, we would, you'd probably dismiss, you know, in a very divided America in an increasingly divided world. I wanted to show that we actually can't dismiss these people, you know, they recognized that many of Borat's views about women were horrific, that in a way they were, Jim and Jerry were feminists. Uh, they believed that women should be treated equally. And so I wanted to show their humanity and that the internet had made them and us susceptible to lies. Um, so this, you know, the first movie was more about revealing a a darker side of uh, America. I mean, it was a comedy, but it's to show a kind of underbelly of racism, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. This movie was more about showing how these lies could lead, if Trump had won again, into an authoritarian regime in America and the end of what we perceive as American democracy. And the way to do that is by spreading lies to ordinary people. So I had to talk to ordinary people here and I had to do the following scene where Borat sings a song that these two guys, Jim and Jerry had co-written, uh, which is called, it uses Trump's racist term for coronavirus, um, and it's entitled the Wuhan flu. And it was to show actually the danger of these racist views that were being adopted by common people. Um, and that that eventually would lead to violence. So for me, it was imperative to show that how these conspiracies, uh, when, you know, when lies are spread, people will die, right? That's what we, saw recently with these uh, horrific killings of Asians. That's what we saw at the Capitol. Uh, that's what we're seeing with uh, the lies spread about coronavirus. These lies spread by fundamentally, you know, people who are looking to promote their own power or their own wealth and adopted uh, by ordinary people lead to death. So not the basis of a normal comedy movie, but yeah, that's what, that's what that's about. You take it where you can find it. Do you, you know, I, I'm sure you get this question a lot, Sasha, about your, and it, and it kind of circles back to that line from Abby in the trailer where he says, you're going to have to hurt some feelings. You know, if we're, if we're going to do our job right, we're going to hurt some feelings. And when you are doing this work in these communities, do you worry about crossing a line, an ethical line or a humanistic line and or and or what are your own kind of private rules of the road and guardrails so that you are staying true to your own principles in terms of dealing with people? Yes, well, listen, firstly, you know, a reminder, I'm a comedian and an actor, so I'm meant to be deeply immoral. Um, so, but I would say in the writer's room, we are discussing the ethics of every piece continually. You know, is there a satirical point? You know, obviously there are scenes that are there just to be funny, but 
there are a number of lines that we are trying to stay within. Um, so yes, literally, you're, I'm, I've been doing that continually, really, from day one. Um, so, you, you know, I have different standards put on me because I'm not a politician. You know, you're not expecting um, Peter Sellers to be a, a great human being or any other <laughs> comedians. But yeah, you know, myself and my fellow writers, we're trying to do something that is firstly really funny. Uh, in this movie, we tried to do something that was really moving, which was a challenge for us. And I hope we succeeded, but we are trying to do something that is moral. And I was really angry about the, this immoral government and these things that were so wrong to me. And so, yes, the whole basis of that movie, the fallout of making it, is to not be a bystander, which to me is an immoral thing to do when, uh, when democracy is being shattered. I feel like it, it, you're complicit if you're a bystander. How do I not be a bystander? You know, some people go out and march in the streets. What I do is I open the cupboard and take out the gray suit and go out and into the world. So that, perfect that's, I, sorry, sorry, you were saying. No, this is, the, this is actually the perfect point to introduce another Sasha Baron Cohen to our audience, which is the guy who puts on the suit and goes out and, and does activist work. This is a clip from your speech um, upon receiving the International Leadership Award from um, the Anti-Defamation League. It's been, it, that was in 2019. This has been seen over 2 million times. Let's see a short clip. Today, around the world, demagogues appeal to our worst instincts. Conspiracy theories once confined to the fringe are going mainstream. It's as if the age of reason, the era of evidential argument is ending. And now knowledge is increasingly delegitimized and scientific consensus is dismissed. Democracy, which depends on shared truths, is in retreat, and autocracy, which depends on shared lies, is on the march. Hate crimes are surging, as are murderous attacks on religious and ethnic minorities. Now, what do all these dangerous trends have in common? I'm just a comedian and an actor, I'm not a scholar, but one thing is pretty clear to me. All this hate and violence is being facilitated by a handful of internet companies that amount to the greatest propaganda machine in history. Those words are truer than ever. They were true then and they're even truer now. Of course, we did see some of the leaders of social media and uh, um, Google today on the Hill, but how do you think these executives should be held accountable? Do you have any specific ideas, either on the basis of regulation or just our own behavior? Well, there, you know, there has to be regulation. What's clear and what's evident is there's only one objective from these handful of people that run Silicon Valley, and that's to increase their share price. In other words, greed. And any changes that have happened along uh, in the internet since that speech have been through the campaigning of groups like 
stop hate for profit. Um, so these companies do not become more ethical. The only way to do that is through public pressure, which I believe stop hate for profit helped create, and then through regulation. So we have to completely overhaul um, something called Section 230, and it's uh, <laughs> some of you may have heard of it because Donald Trump uh, popularized that um, that part of the law. And you know, quite simply, you know, I believe if someone like Mark Zuckerberg helps facilitate the death of people, if he spreads lies that kill people, if he um, spreads anti-Asian sentiment that leads to murders, if he allows death threats online that lead to people being killed, it's odd that he can't end up in jail. I mean, currently he can't even be sued. So um, I'm liable for anything that I put out. Um, I've been sued many times. I'm currently being sued by Judge Roy Moore for um, a piece I did with him on a show a few years ago. But because of the law that was set up in a completely different age, these internet companies and th this handful of people, it really is about five or six people, um, cannot be sued. So they are completely unaccountable. Um, so yes, regula regulation needs to happen fast um, because these platforms are biased towards spreading conspiracy theories that kill. I mean, look at look at the COVID conspiracies. YouTube, um, which is also completely controlled by one person, has been spreading conspiracy theories about COVID from the beginning, about 5G, uh, which led to... Um, it led to, you know, attacks on um, masks that were, you know, spreading uh, radio signals. Um, they spread the concept of the pandemic, the idea that the pandemic was in fact planned by George Soros and Bill Gates. I mean, these are these are very dangerous ideas that ended up. Um, convincing people not to follow scientific protocol. And that led to the needless death of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not more people. I mean, it, it's very, what's clear a year on from the start of the pandemic is that there were two ways to handle it. And again, I'm a comedian, I'm an actor, so feel free to switch off. But you could either follow science, which countries like New Zealand did, or Singapore, and you can reduce the death rate, you know, drastically, or you can spread conspiracies like Donald Trump did, and you can have a huge death toll. So the spreading of these conspiracies, whether it's about Asians, or whether it's about Jews, or whether it's about COVID, these lies, when people lie, people die. Um, and they're unaccountable. So I think the need for legislation is urgent because you have fundamentally a, a small group of completely amoral billionaires who are working within organizations where nobody is challenging them. 
and um, it's going to carry on the you know the lies the conspiracies in it uh, ultimately it destroys democracy and it destroys fact and um, it undermines scientific you know consensus and that's very problematic you know people aren't going to take the vaccine if um, anti-vax conspiracy theories are spread on the net and they are you know we've recently found out that the anti-vaxxers have actually intentionally targeted certain ethnic groups they've targeted muslims saying that spreading lies that the vaccine uh, is not halal uh, you know, these lies, but they're trying to get people not to take the vaccine. That's going to lead to the uh, this pandemic being with us longer, more variants and more death. So, no, it's not OK. It's um, I think we will look back at this period and we will be, you know, it, we will look at it in disbelief that we let these handful of people act like emperors. Mm. You know, I wanted to ask you about the pandemic and, and what this last year has taught you about audiences and stories. And has it has it changed your plans in terms of the kinds of storytelling and stories you're going to be doing um, in the future? What, what's next? Um, I have no plans. I don't I, I don't really I'm very bad at making plans or uh, I've done very few projects, really, considering I've been around for quite a while. Um, I've only really done about five movies that are not my own and usually I do them when I just completely admire the director so if Scorsese asked me to play a role in his in Hugo I'd say yes um, and again Abby Hoffman was the thing that drew me and obviously Aaron Sorkin's writing so I don't know I mean I don't know if the pandemic has changed my attitude to that. I mean, again, I brought out Borat because I felt democracy, you know, I I feel very privileged to have been brought up in a democratic country and, you know, with democracy with all its faults, it was something that I felt you have to, you know, to actually be active to defend. I'm not saying I defended it, but it, it was my attempt and it was the reason why the crew I had and the writers and Maria Bakalova, the brilliant actress who plays Borat's daughter, took these real risks making that movie because we, we were just really scared that American democracy was disintegrating. Well, I'm not sure if I answered are, your question. No, you did. And and um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I do want to that 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 ties into your activism continuing. I know there's a town hall, I think tomorrow at noon. Can you quickly tell us how to tune into that with activists like Dolores Huerta and, and other other important people? How do people tune in? Um, I do not know the details, but I can tell you it was really interesting. I mean, I was really honored uh, to be there. And there's actually um, one of the, original members of the Chicago 7 is there. So it, it was a real honor to be in that panel. But, you know, there's a there's a talk about. Think... Sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
No, no, no. I mean, it, you know, I, it felt, you know, I, I felt slightly out of place because those are real activists who have really made a change. Um, I mean, Weiner from the Chicago 7 is still an activist. You know, he's still true. Uh, you know, much like Abby Hoffman, who till his dying day, unfortunately, as those of you who saw the movie know, he committed suicide. He was a manic depressive. But until his dying day, he was almost all the money he was making through giving speeches and writing books, he gave back to the cause and... Um, so I, I I would tune in. I, f I found it really interesting. I'm sure it'll be fascinating. I think it's the Netflix YouTube channel, if such a thing exists. So so Google that, tune in. Sasha, I could go on forever, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight. I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. That's uh, having my least um, entertaining character on. Thank you. <laughs> Not at all. Everyone, please tune in again tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. Eastern for a powerful conversation about combating anti-Asian racism with representatives Judy Chu and Mark Takano. Once again, I'm Ann Hornaday, Chief Film Critic for The Washington Post. Thank you all for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.